The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. So it seems that he had some underlying difficulties, but could it have precipitated the murders? Not in and of itself. He was in great physical pain. It was all imagined, of course. He began to address ways to alleviate that pain. And what he did was he began to kill small animals and use their blood and, and body parts. Animals and birds, you know, killing them, drinking their blood. He needed extensive care. He was not receiving as much care as he should have gotten. The victim was found in the residence and that she had been, they believe, shot and had been opened up with a knife. You'd almost want to say butchered. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. I'm Anne-Marie Schubert. And this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. Today, we are going to talk about one of the most horrifying and sadistic cases in Sacramento County history. That is the case of Richard Trenton Chase, uh, who some people have coined the vampire killer. Today is part one of a two-part series. And my guests today that I'm honored to have are Sacramento Assistant District Attorney Albert Loker, who's retired now, and Carol Daly, who's the retired undersheriff of the Sacramento Sheriff's Office who was involved in this case. So thank you, both of you. And if we can each maybe just give us a little introduction. We'll start with Carol, if that's okay. Hi. Yes. Um, at the time um, of the uh, Richard Chase case, I was a detective working with Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. During that time, Amory, as you remember, we had gone through two years of terror in the community with the East Area Rapist. And uh, so um, this crime compounded the fear, especially out in the North Area, of what was going on in the community um, on top of everything else. I was full-time assigned to the task force for the East Area Rapist, but was also pulled back into various homicide investigations for um, interview purposes or follow-up purposes. And at this time, I was working with my partner, Sergeant Jim Bevins, and we were called into this investigation to uh, make contact um, with the Ferreira family. Um, and this was after the baby had been kidnapped to uh, try to put them at ease and let them know we were doing everything that we could. And uh, then we had um, did a follow-up contact at Richard Chase's apartment. And um, of course, he didn't answer the door. And so really my next involvement in this case was when the arrest was made and we went to uh, the scene 
to help process uh, the crime scene and to look at everything there and to collect um, evidence. And so my part was really on the peripheral, but very much a part of uh, what happened at the time of the arrest. All righty. And we're going to get into that in specifics. Um, let, me, um, let me introduce Albert, just have you introduce yourself. Then we'll kind of walk into what the crimes were and each of your particular involvements. Um, my name is Albert Loker, um, and uh, as Anne-Marie said, I was eventually the assistant district attorney of Sacramento County, but going back to the time of the Chase case, I was fairly new in my career. I'd been um, with the DA's office about a year and a half, and after the arrest, uh, after the crimes had been committed in the arrest, uh, Ron Tochterman, who was at that time in the DA's office, um, was an assistant chief deputy. Um, he decided that he wanted to handle the case himself, and he brought me in as a second chair to handle uh, um, some of the case, the presentation of it, and and um, putting together the the case and the evidence because it it was a it, it was a case that had lots of aspects to it, lots of evidence, lots of witnesses, lots of physical evidence, lots of lab stuff, and lots of of psychiatric stuff because it was a, a, a case where the defendant had a psychiatric background and the, the ultimately the defense was a psychiatric defense. Um, so I became involved um, just, he was arrested on a Saturday. I became involved on the Monday or Tuesday and was perpetually involved with it uh, to the end of the case. Carol, just tell us how long were you with the sheriff's office? Um, I hired on in 1968 and retired in 2001. Um, so the first uh, few years of my career, I, I specialized in crimes against children and um, worked sexual assaults in seven years in the homicide detail um, before I promoted to sergeant in 1984 and um, spent a couple of years in internal affairs. After that, my investigative career went more to community service and administrative assignments. And then, Albert, how long were you a prosecutor before you retired? Um, 37 years, three months, uh, I think 13 <laughs> days, but who's counting? Something like that. Um, okay. Well, the point to me for the listeners is the two of you represent kind of the institutional knowledge, not only of this case, but just of law enforcement in Sacramento. So um, I hopefully the listeners understand that, that you two have some amazing experience and um, bring some facts to this case that perhaps people don't know. So let me, um, let me start off um, by telling folks that this is, even for someone like myself who's seen a lot in all of you, uh, this is a very, very disturbing case. So some of the facts that may come out today in this podcast are very disturbing. Um, so I just want to give the listeners that, that sense of, of what we're talking about here. Let me just kind of just describe the crimes. Uh, Albert, if I, at any point, or Carol, if I miss some significant deep details, please let me uh, correct me and um, and make sure we fill those in. Um, there were many things that led up to this killing spree. And what's, that's really why we have our guests here, kind of talk about what led up to it. And then how did we get, how did you get through the investigation and the trial? But essentially, just to give the listeners an idea, in, during a one month period of time from December of 1977 to January of 1978, Richard Chenton Chase killed six people. And that uh, initially began, there was a lot of other stuff leading up to it, what I'll, which I'll let Carol and Albert talk about. But the killing itself, killing spree, uh, began on December 29th in 1977 when uh, Chase 
shot and killed a gentleman by the name of uh, Ambrose Griffin, 51-year-old engineer who was getting groceries out of his car. This all occurred in a fairly small part of Sacramento, the Arden Arcade area. Um, and that was a, what was believed at the time to be a random killing. And then about three weeks later, uh, Richard Chase broke into the home, into a home uh, on July, January 23rd, 1978. Uh, he ransacked that house. He stole money. He then urinated on clothing and defecated on a child's bed. Later that day, he then went to the home of a 22-year-old pregnant woman by the name of Teresa Wallen. She was three months pregnant. He shot and killed her. Uh, and then he mutilated her body, sexually posed her, um, engaged in what people may call necrophilia, and then uh, disturbingly put feces in her mouth, and then he drank her blood. And an autopsy showed that her uh, spleen had been removed and some of the organs had been displaced as well. Uh, within the next couple of days, Chase spent time canvassing the neighborhood where he would choose his next victims. Um, on January 25th, uh, Chase shot and killed a puppy, a Labrador puppy, and then proceeded to mutilate its body. Then the culmination of this murder spree uh, happened on January 27th, 1978, when he broke into the home of a woman, 38-year-old woman by the name of Evelyn Maroth. Evelyn um, lived in an Arden Arcade home. She was babysitting a child by the name of David Ferreira, who was 22 months old. Um, he, she also had a son named Jason and a friend of hers named Danny, Danny Meredith that was over there. Uh, Chase broke in. He shot Danny Meredith, uh, shot and killed him. He, then, he also killed Evelyn and her six-year-old son, Jason, as well as the 22-month-old uh, nephew, David Ferreira. As uh, most folks are know that he then proceeded to mutilate Evelyn's body, engaged in necrophilia and cannibalism with her corpse, which uh, I'm sure Albert can describe in more detail. He fled in David Meredith's car with the baby. Uh, sadly, the baby uh, was missing for three months and was later found abandoned in a box behind a church in a grocery store. Um, the morning of uh, that, later that morning after the murders, a neighbor knocked on Evelyn's door um, and no one answered. The police were alerted that something suspicious was going on and they arrived to find the bodies of Evelyn Maroth, her six-year-old son, and David Daniel Meredith. The baby was missing again. Um, Mr. Meredith's car was found at the defendant's apartment complex later that day. And we're going to talk about the arrest, but Richard Chase was arrested later that day when the sheriff's office went to his apartment. He tried to flee and he threw a bloody cardboard box uh, at the detectives uh, with various items, including the baby's diaper pin and the number of bloody items. Um, I think, uh, both Albert and Carol can describe the gruesome findings inside that apartment, but there was blood all over the place, body parts of both people and humans. So it was, and so obviously Chase was then arrested and prosecuted by the DA's office. So that's where I kind of, hopefully I did that justice. Uh, Albert, if I missed anything or Carol, maybe you want to fill those gaps in for us right now. No, I think, I think you covered it from my angle. So Carol, your work in homicide uh, you already kind of told the viewers or the listeners that, you know, we're in the height of the East Area Rapists. And, and, and those of us in Sacramento call the Golden State Killer the East Area Rapist. But we're talking about the Golden State Killer, who we now know killed 13 people and raped a number of people. Um, so kind of walk, walk the listeners through. What was it like in Sacramento at this time, 1977? Hmm. 
Well, in 1977, um, when the Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist, started his rampage that was to last for two years in Sacramento County with all of the, the sexual assault victims and, of course, the double homicide of the majorities, um, the community was in an absolute state of fear. There was not a house that wasn't barricaded, that didn't have locks on it. Um, gun sales went off uh, the radar. Uh, stores were emptied. Um, locks, um, safety seminars going on everywhere to tell people how to be safe. There were people who were staying awake in shifts during the night to make sure that uh, the East Area Rapist wasn't going to uh, be able to come into their house. There was a lot of disbelief in the community that such a crime could occur uh, and uh, the victims especially when there became other people um, in, at the crime scene uh, other people in the home there was such a disbelief that any crime like that could happen when there was more than one person in the home um, there uh, was uh, a lot of education that had to be done in the community I remember at the time we had large community meetings of 600 to 900 people where we let them know what was going on there was so much fear in the community there was a lot of erroneous information that was going on and we were just trying to um, not put the community at ease but to let them know what was really happening and what they could do to protect themselves uh, we had um, at the time we had um, lots of overtime we had people volunteering to work overtime we had officers from other outside agencies coming and volunteering to work in sacramento this was a huge deal um, because we uh, at one point he had started to go to other jurisdictions and then come back to sacramento and so there was a lot of fear uh, in the community at that time so so we now have got the east area rapist golden state killer running around and now we have a serial killer, you know, in pretty much the same area, in the Arden area of Sacramento, but it's a yes. very different kind of killer. So how does that, we've got somebody that's really essentially engaging in, you know, mutilation, you know, necrophilia, which is essentially, you know, sex with dead bodies, cannibalism, you know, eviscerating their bodies. So kind of tell us how that all fit in when you're in the middle of this other massive investigation. Well, it, here again, it's, it was the fear in the community and, and the media, because the media was picking up on these crimes. And they were, you know, some of them were front page. Um, there were articles being written about it. And I'm sure at the time, I don't, I don't believe I have copies of the articles, but I don't believe there was any detail of, of the uh, really horrendous uh, things that were going on in the crimes, just that there had been a murder, you know, a child was missing. And right. uh, so it just, it just fueled the fear in the community. Um, looking back, um, because I was not a part of the crime scene of any one of these, um, I, 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 I don't know if I could count it as a blessing, but these were horrendous crimes, even reading about them. Um, when um, I received the summary that Al Loker did, I didn't even want to read it at night because it right. is so horrendous as to what this man did. And uh, that was stuff that really could not be shared with the community. But anytime that you walk outside and your next door neighbor has been murdered, anytime a family has a great loss like this, it doesn't affect just that family. It's the whole neighborhood. It's the whole community. And right. um, it was... Um, uh, it was a very, very difficult time in the community. Um, and um, I think about the officers who had to respond to those crime scenes and what they saw. I worked some pretty horrific crimes and homicides, 
but nothing really compares to what these crimes were all about. I came in uh, when we were, uh, Sergeant Bevins and I were doing some of the follow-up leads. And I remember that we had gone to Chase's apartment and I'm not even quite sure remembering exactly why we were there, but we went to make contact with Chase, Richard Chase at his apartment. Um, and there was no answer at the door and we left. Um, we were um, just doing uh, lead follow-up as, as the leads came in. Anytime you have a crime like this, the whole homicide detail is involved. Um, when a crime occurs, the whole team responds. And then after that, it's assigned to maybe a couple of investigators to do the follow-up. And so when the arrest occurred, the whole, the whole homicide detail responded uh, at the direction of Ray Biondi and some of the others were there. Um, most of the uh, officers who were involved with homicide at that time uh, have now are, are now deceased and not with us anymore. But um, it, it was a unit effort in in trying to process that crime scene and work with the criminalist and everything. Did you go into his apartment, Chase's apartment? Yes. Yes. After he was arrested, uh, we responded to the apartment uh, to see what the directions were, what, you know, what follow up that we needed to do. And uh, I remember uh, the horrificness of the apartment, but mostly what I remember is opening the refrigerator and opening the freezer and seeing body organs uh, preserved and ready for him to eat. And it just, it was, it was so real. When you open our freezer, maybe you see chicken or roast beef and open his refrigerator and freezer and you see body parts and, uh, knowing that he was going to consume them. It, it's hard to even wrap your head around it. It's right, hard. Right. Um, yes. Yes. I understand that. Um, let me talk to Albert for a few minutes. So Albert, you, and dare I ask, but how long had you been a prosecutor at the time you got assigned to be kind of the second chair of this case? I'd been a prosecutor um, about a year and a half, maybe even a touch less than that. Um, I had a very um, unusual career path in the DA's office for my first few years. Um, and, and this was probably the most out, out of the usual um, thing that, that involved me. Um, so, but I was, I was, asked to participate in the case, and I did, and, and Ron, um, in, in the end, trusted me with a lot of things, and I had a lot of responsibility, um, and it was a, a, a fascinating experience from so many points of view. I can only imagine. When you and I were talking kind of a couple of weeks ago in preparation, you described Chase as a, a sexual sadist to me, and, you know, perhaps for the listeners, you can kind of describe what does that mean? And then we'll kind of talk about his mental health history leading up to all this. Well, a sexual sadist simply is, is somebody who gets, who, who derives sexual excitement, sexual gratification um, from being sadistic with other people um, and doing sadistic things with other people. Um, and Chase had a psychiatric history that involved other things and he had other diagnoses um, but in the end, when you looked at all of his, all of his history and the things that he had done and, the, and the, certainly the things that he did in this case, he also uh, um, met the diagnostic criteria for being a sexual sadist. So let's talk about his mental health history, because just to, to give the listeners um, an understanding, he gets charged in Sacramento County with, with what, six counts of murder, I assume. 
Yes. And then a decision was made back in, at the time that the office would seek the death penalty against Richard Chase, correct? Yes. So just to tee this up, when you're seeking a death penalty, you have to do two phases, right? A get what we call a guilt phase and a penalty phase. A guilt phase and a penalty phase. And then in a case like this, where there's also an insanity defense, you have to do a third phase, which is the sanity phase. So it's a, actually a three-phase trial. So what came first, guilt or sanity? Um, guilt first, then sanity, then penalty. Okay. So before we kind of talk about the trial, maybe, you know, in preparation, I assume that the whole defense for Chase is not that I, he didn't do it. It was uh, he's mentally disturbed and shouldn't be held responsible. Um, yes. Um, th that's not to say that, that the defense didn't try and, and punch holes um, in, in some of the he did it kind of stuff. And in particular, um, there, was, there was an effort made um, it, it's, it's a little complicated factually to, to explain uh, um, how this came about, but there was an effort made on the part of the defense to punch holes in the evidence that linked Chase to the Ambrose Griffin killing, the man who was shot um, out by his driveway getting the groceries out of the car, um, because that didn't fit the pattern of the, of the you know, crazy psychotic guy. Um, right. and, and so to the extent that the defense could knock that out of the pattern, um, it, it would, you know, fit more with the, the, the um, picture that they wanted to present than if um, we, we have this and actually a couple of incidents that led up to it to sort of indicate that, you know, Chase was building up to this and testing the waters. And finally, when he killed Griffin and found out that he could kill somebody and get away with it, then he started doing what he really wanted to do, which is breaking into homes um, mutilating people, engaging in sexual sadistic acts. Um, and the right, so, go ahead. Yeah, I think, I mean, the point, I think the point you make is really valid, which is you are there as a prosecutor, you have to show what we call premeditation and deliberation, which means that he thought about it. Um, you know, he had uh, an intent to kill, those kinds of things. With, and you've got a guy with a psychiatric history. Start with the psychiatric history, because you know this stuff very well, Albert. Like, you know, what did it include? And then how did you prepare yourself um, for presenting this or having the prosecution team present this? Um, he had a psychiatric history that went back um, several years. He was, he was born in 1950. So he was 27 and uh, um, um, I think, I think May of 1950. So he's, you know, 27, um, not, not quite 28 when he's, when he's committing these crimes. Um, his, his psychiatric problems had really started, in retrospect, some of the um, th things where he started to change happened at the end of his high school time, but really um, more when he was in junior college, he started becoming um, uh, more um, separate from, from people, um, isolating himself, um, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and eventually, um, he, he wound up, um, having psychiatric evaluations and was placed on a, a psychiatric conservatorship, um, and was on a psychiatric conservatorship for, for about a year and, and was in a, a, um, locked treatment facility. But during the time he was there, um, his psychiatric condition improved somewhat. 
Um, and the, the conservatorship only lasts for a year. It can be renewed, um, but there was no, no real um, thought or effort given to renew it at that point. He seemed to have improved somewhat. And he, he, he wound up um, off the psychiatric conservatorship, but then he would have things, things happen, which from time to time would, would bring him into the uh, um, consideration, if you, if you will, of various aspects of the psychiatric community. You know, he showed up at a doctor's office and, 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 and said he, he was ill and needed medical oxygen um, because one of, the, one of the features of his psychiatric illness was he had this idea that, that he was physically ill, not that he was mentally ill, but that he was physically ill and right. that he needed uh, um, medical treatment for that. And one of the things he felt he needed for that was blood. Um, right. And, and there were some indications that he had, had actually trapped birds when he was in the psychiatric facility um, and, and had uh, ingested blood from them. And at another point afterwards out of the psychiatric facility, he wound up being hospitalized because he had septicemia and the type of septicemia he had could really have only come if he tried to essentially transfuse himself with blood uh, of, of some type. It was not animal blood. Uh, probably um, never fully diagnosed. So he was he, he was doing you know those those kinds of of things, um, but at times in, in his interaction with with, with um, people he, he would act bizarrely. He was withdrawn, um, but he was also capable of inter interacting somewhat normally um, from time to time. Certainly with his with his father and, and with some other people as well, but, but withdrawn. Um, so let me ask this in terms of his mental health history, because I know you mentioned, you know, he was institutionalized here and there, he got medicated, but some of the things that, you know, maybe are the most graphic is, you know, the, tell, tell the listeners about what he did with rabbits. <laughs> well, he, uh, basically he, he, um, he got rabbits and butchered rabbits, um, and, and and would he probably tried to in, in, ingest somehow the blood of of a rabbit, um, and, and that's how he got septicemia. Um, and his his excuse, and, and and there's truth to this, is 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 that you know he was just he, he was using them for food. Um, it, rabbits are not a big food in this country, but in some parts of this country they have been historically, and in other parts of the world, you know. Rabbits, um, you know, dogs are sometimes used for food, um, but he was he was using um, rabbits that way, and he was using he was using dogs that way. There was a period of time in, in in the several months leading up to the murders where where he had either gotten dogs from the SPCA or or he had kidnapped dogs from from people's homes or things like that. Um, and and he didn't he he you know eaten the blood eaten the organs um, at, at one point having kidnapped a dog um, the the dog had a, a um, collar with a tag on it with identifying stuff the family had put an advertisement out for the dog they didn't know what happened to the dog they were trying to find the dog um, Chase called them up <laughs> to torment them a little bit about you know what's going on with your dog and stuff like that. And eventually that was all linked back to Chase because when his apartment was searched after, after the arrest, the, the, the collar with the tag for that dog was in his apartment. Oh my goodness. He also, if my memory's correct, he also killed his, he killed his mother's cat and, and uh, he killed his mother's cat. 
He killed his mother's cat right out of front, front of her front yard. He he'd come over and it got to a point where his mother wouldn't let him in the house. Sometimes his mother lived there with with her mother, his grandmother, um, and they looked out uh, or they he wanted to come in and they wouldn't let him in. And then they heard a a a, a big bang, a loud noise, um, and looked out and Chase was out there and he was holding up the cat by the tail. Um, cat obviously dead and bloody, and he and he um, you know. He took his hands and smeared some of the blood around his around his his neck and his upper body. And then you also um, part of his mental health history. You then didn't he go to Lake Pyramid and do something with a, a bigger um, animal? Um, well, it, it, at, at Pyramid Lake, this is an odd sort of incident. Um, it 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 uh, he he was found at the Pyramid Lake area, which is in Nevada. Um, and he was basically out sort of, in it, I mean, this is desert. Um, there is a lake there, but it's sort of a sandy area. He, he had a, a, a vehicle at that time, a, a Ranchero um, um, pickup truck. It's a pickup truck made to look in some respects like a car, but it's a pickup truck. Um, and he had had this um, for a while. He's out in the middle of nowhere there. Um, and he gets spotted by rangers who, who go and, and, and see what he's up to. Um, he had, Two rifles in the car, a 30-30 and a 22. Um, his vehicle was was stuck in the sand. He couldn't get it out. And, and there was um, like a bucket or some sort of container in the back of the vehicle that, that had um, an organ in it. And it, turned, and it turned out to be a liver. And at first, the, the, the officers didn't know what it was. They were concerned. Um, he was taken into custody. He was in custody for a few days. But lab tests came back and showed that it was a cow liver. Um, and, and they couldn't match it up to any, uh, you know, crime with respect to cows. So they released him. They kept the, the, um, but wasn't the, he running the, around naked in the, in the, oh, oh uh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. When, when they got out there, he's, he's out there running around naked and he's got blood smeared on him and he's, and he's got this pickup truck with, 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 um, the, the rifles and, and the cow liver in it, um, and, you know, they they asked him what he was up to and he gave some answers that really didn't make any sense. But then in the end, they um, they, they ultimately kept the rifles. Um, they released him um, and he they wouldn't give him the car at first. And his father tried to help him get the car back with, without success. But but um, Richard, on his own, somehow um, got got the car back from the, the um, police agency up there. This this all goes back to August. Of 77, which is, you know, it was the following December when, when Ambrose Griffin was shot. Okay. So, um, he gets arrested for this mutilation of this cow. He's released. You described that it's, you know, he, it, sometimes he could act normal. He's weaned off his medication and now we're whatever, four months or so before the, the Griffin murder. So he obviously gets a new gun, right? He did. He, he, and he got completely lawfully, except that, um, first of all, I have to say that, you know, gun checks and, and, the, and the procedures and mechanisms for doing that um, in 1977 were not what they are today. Um, right. But, but he went to a sporting goods store and, and he uh, um, uh, purchased a gun. It was a, a, a pistol. It was a 22 caliber pistol, but, but a, a Luger style Um and he had to wait for a couple of weeks, um, the waiting period, for a, a background check. Um, 
but he went through that and picked up the gun on December 18th. So how does this all, you know, when we talk about preparing a case, here you got to prepare the guilt phase and you've got to show premeditation deliberation. Maybe you can describe for the listeners. Okay, there's no question this guy has a, a serious psychiatric history, right? He's, a, he's engaged in, a, he's obviously killing people, necrophilia, cannibalism. You know, what are you doing as a prosecutor to, to put on evidence or to prepare for the jury to show no, even though he's got some mental health is- issues, he still has the ability to form intent to kill. Well, you know, without going into a, a, a law school class and all the different elements that, that are composed in, in both uh, um, the insanity defense and w- the, the mental states necessary for murder, you know, malice of forethought, premeditation, those kinds of things, we're basically looking at uh, um, whether or not the person knew what they were doing. In other words, did they know that they, that they were cutting up a, a human being or did they think they were cutting up an orange? Um, right. And, and then did they, uh, um, were they capable of, of, of planning and, and reflecting on this? Um, did they know that what they were doing was wrong? Um, th- those are the kind of elements that go into to this. And so from our point of view, we were looking at all the evidence that would show that he engaged in re- reflective behavior, planning right. behavior, um, that, that, that he knew that what he was doing was wrong. Um, and as it turned out in this case, there was a lot of that kind of evidence. Um, there was a whole sort of building up, if you will, from the, from the time um, he, he, he got the gun in mid-December until the time he, he um, killed Ambrose Griffin. There was some sort of random shooting around the neighborhood. And then he shot into a house on December 20, around December 25th or 26th. Um, he he um, shot into a, to a house, um, just into a wall on the side of the house um, late, at, late at night. Um, and then uh, um, a couple of days later on December 27th, this is two days before Ambrose Griffin was killed, he shot into a into a house where there was a woman standing at the at at what was her her, her kitchen window. She's doing the dishes, uh, and a bullet came in through the window and actually went through her hair, went right right through here there through her hair wow. and lodged in the the cabinets behind her. Um, and that bullet ultimately came back to Richard Chase and Richard Chase's gun. Um, so he was trying to kill her, not quite as good a shot, um, and, and and so she she wound up. Um, uninjured, but obviously, you know, a, a, yeah. a frightful incident. And then two days later, um, in about the same neighborhood again, he's driving past where Mr. Griffin has, has, you know, gone to the store and brought in some groceries and gone back out to the car to get some more groceries out of the, out of the trunk of the car. And Chase drives by and fires two shots at him from his car as he passes by. Um, one of them misses completely, but one of them hits Mr. Griffin in the chest and he dies. And, and so that from our point of view, then that's, that's sort of, you know, building up, testing the waters kind of behavior. Because after, after he did that, um, he had bought some ammunition when he bought the gun. But after he did that, um, a couple of weeks later, he went back and he bought uh, three more boxes of ammunition. And he went out and practiced somewhere because in the end, um, the, the number of rounds of ammunition that were found you know, in his gun and his apartment and stuff like that did not add up to the number of rounds of ammunition that he purchased. So he got out and practiced okay. somewhere in the middle of January. And then, and then it was on J- January 23rd 
that he first broke into the Edwards house. There was nobody there. Um, and, 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 you know, stole some things, but also did some bizarre things. He, he, um, you know, defecated the one he defecated. Yeah, defecated on the bed and urinated into a drawer uh, of, of clothing. Um, the Edwards came home when he was there. He, he managed to get out of the house and get away. They saw him and, and they yelled at him. And he said, oh, I'm just jumping the fence to take a shortcut because that's what he did. He jumped the fence there. Um, but when he did that, he was wearing a blue coat. Um, he went home, which wasn't a, a long distance away for him. Um, and he changed to an orange coat. Um, so this this shows that that he knew that, that Right. That um, he, he'd been seen somewhere and he ought to change his appearance. So he changes to an orange coat. Um, and then he goes and, and ultimately goes into Teresa Wallen's house where he shoots and kills her and mutilates her, um, leaves her sexually posed, as, as, as you indicated. Um, right. um, and, and then four days later, he, he and, and one thing that's significant to point out is in, in that in that scene, he wore he wore gloves. He wore um, um, Playtex kitchen gloves. Uh, we we know that he did because those gloves have a a fingerprint pattern on them. It's not the fingerprints like yeah, but it's sort of to you know for for friction and handling dishes and stuff like that. And and some of those were uh, those fingerprint patterns from the gloves were are around the scene. Um, that was the Teresa Wallen scene. That was at the Teresa Wallen scene. Um, and and then also uh, he used a, a knife um, in in mutilating her, and it was it was a knife that belonged to the Wallens, and it was there in the Wallen house. Um, we but after he was done using it, he cleaned it up, and it had it had um, apparently come from some dishes that had been washed and were in a, a, a drying rag next to the sink, as people will do. Mm -hmm. um, and he had cleaned it up and he, and he stuck it back in the drying rack and it's underneath a, underneath a glass casserole dish at the scene and, and wouldn't have caused a, a, second, a, a second look except that um, officers saw a little bit of a blood smear on the drying rack itself. And so they examined everything that's in the drying rack. And, and they, when they get that knife out from under the casserole dish, they find, um, they find a little bit of blood smear on it. And ultimately the crime lab finds some more blood smears. Um, so, so all of this kind of behavior shows that that he knows he's thinking. What he's, doing. he's thinking. He knows what he's doing, and he's trying to cover up. Um, when he when he left the house because of the sequence of what doors were open and closed and locked and all, and unlocked and stuff like that. Um, when he left the house, he left through through the the back door of the house and went through the backyard through a gate in the back, and the gate in the back opened up onto a a, a shopping center parking lot. Um, so instead of going out the front, having done all this stuff, he, he chooses an escape path that that, um, right. that uh, keeps him concealed. When did the, when did the case go to trial? The the case um, went to trial. The te technically, um, the, the trial started in in December of seventy eight, um, and Which that's is very fast by the way. Very, very well, fast. it's it's very fast by today's standards. It, it's you know from 1977, 1978 standards. It, it's not not quite as fast as uh, I mean. It was you know we we pushed it forward, but it but it was not uh, um, extraordinary or unusual for a murder case to to go to trial within a year in those days. And and it's, I mean there there had been some motions and some other things, and eventually a change of venue motion, and 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 venue was changed to Santa Clara County. 
Um, but and so that's where the case was tried. But the jury selection began in, began in December of of 1978, and the jury section selection was completed before before the holidays. Um, and and so we took a recess until uh, until after the holidays, and we started putting on evidence. I think January 2nd of 1979, you know, the, the first business day back after the new year and the, and the trial continued on in, until the, the middle of May, the, the penalty verdicts um, came on May, May um, 17th. Okay. So maybe you can just, you know, briefly kind of describe, so you're doing the guilt phase first. So you're putting all the evidence on showing that he was responsible for all these murders and you're proving you know, it's premeditated and deliberate. And they come back, the jury comes back with the guilty on that first, correct? Yes. And then, then you have to move to the sanity phase. So maybe you can describe what, what does that mean? What's a sanity phase? And was there something about this case that was a little bit different? Well, the, the, the thing that was perhaps a little bit different is that the sanity phase was very short be, because um, the, all of the psychiatrists who would have testified in the in the sanity phase had already testified in the guilt phase because there are overlapping uh, um, points of law and, and, and legal concepts relating to premeditation, deliberation, uh, um, right. Uh, right. The, the legal mental state of malice of forethought. The, the, what's involved in those overlaps a great deal with the same kinds of concepts that, um, that, that are involved in the insanity defense. And, and so to address those issues in the guilt phase, um, there were several psychiatric witnesses um, for, for both sides that were called by both sides. Um, and they were fully questioned about all of this stuff in the, in the guilt phase. Um, right. And so when you got to the sanity phase, um, there wasn't any more evidence to put on. I mean, you know, we could have, the defense could have called back those psychiatrists, but there wasn't anything new for them to say. And, and so um, the, the insanity phase consisted really of, okay, Jerry, you've heard all of this evidence. Um, now, this is this is what the law of insanity is. You decided some issues related to this case um, under one standard, which which are the, the the mental states necessary to be guilty of murder. Now, if the mental states guilty to be uh, or to be to be um, considered for for sanity, this is the legal standard for that. Um, and and both sides argued, and the judge gave instructions, and and then the jury went out. So. So the, the sanity phase itself was was very short. Okay. So I assume they obviously found him sane, correct? They found him sane or we wouldn't have gone on to the penalty phase. Okay. So then tell, I mean, penalty phase is reserved for death penalty cases. Maybe kind of describe what's, what's the purpose of the penalty phase and what happened in this particular penalty phase. Well, it, the purpose of the penalty phase is to decide whether or not this extraordinary penalty um, provided for in the law is appropriate in, in this case for this defendant. And so you, you look at um, both what are called aggravating factors and mitigating factors. And, and the, the standard of relevance has a certain amount of breadth to it. There are things that that would come in at this phase that wouldn't come in before this um you know the impact on on the victim's families um and 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 those sorts of things um other criminal conduct that the defendant might have engaged in although i don't i don't think in this case we had much of that nature to, right. to put in that certainly nothing that much that would have eclipsed 
what the jury had already heard about these murders. Um, right. And then and then the defense um, has a chance to put on, uh, you know, mitigating kinds of things as well. Um, and and members of the defendant's family can come in and, and, and talk about the defendant in his background and, and those sorts of things in ways that would not have been relevant before. So you, you get this more complete picture, not just of the crimes, but of the whole person to, to right. see whether or not they are, are, are worthy of this, of this punishment. Um, and then the jury is instructed on the legal standards for that. The, um, both both um, sides argue, argue for this. Uh, and then the jury goes out and decides to does the defendant get the death penalty or, or get life without parole? Carol, did you testify in the trial at all? I, I don't believe I did. Okay. Uh, obviously, lots of other death penalty cases you've been involved in. But, um, Albert, what would you say in terms of the penalty phase? You know, I assume family members of the six victims were called to testify. Um, yes. And I can't recall the specifics of, of, of who all did, but, but absolutely. Okay. Um, some some family members uh, from the victims were were called, and the and the defense called, you know, the, some of the defendants' family members as well. Right, right. What do you what would you say? I mean, sitting back today, you know, it's been forty something years or whatever since the crime. What would you say is the most significant memory you have of the trial, and or the case, I should say. Um. It, it, it's it's funny how much about this case that I do remember, even though it was more than 40 years ago. Um, it's hard to say that, that there's a one specific thing. Um, I, I mean, certainly, certainly I, I remember several different things. Um, for the, the way the case was divided up, Ron um, Tochterman, the lead attorney, um, did most of, this, of the psychiatric and psychological evidence. Um, and he put on uh, the prosecution psychiatrist witnesses, and he cross-examined the defense psychiatrist witnesses. Um, but in the end, uh, there was also a, a psychologist who had examined the defendant. Um, and, and, and Ron had me handle that and a, and a rebuttal psychologist that we put on. And that was certainly a, a, a high point for, for me in, in the trial. Uh, um, having the opportunity to do that in, in a case of that magnitude. Um, the, the, uh, um, just the, the fact of, of, of being there in the courtroom and, and sitting there every day, you know, seeing all of this stuff go on. And, um, and, and for me, um, you know, watching two excellent, much more experienced attorneys than I, uh, um, presenting their case because Ferris Salami, who was the chief public defender at the time and was the defense attorney, um, very experienced uh, attorney and a very good attorney um, and, and to watch him and then to, to, to watch Ron and Ron was, was, was just a master um, and ultimately, you know, won awards and, and, and statewide and even national recognition for how he, he had not really been a, 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 a an expert in, psychiatric evidence before, but he made himself that he became that and he became a recognized authority and, and someone who was consulted because of how he uh, um, developed the, the things in the, in the case. And to, to watch him uh, um, do that, um, I, I mean, just, just the whole package of watching him, I learned, I learned so much. And, and the very last case that I tried as a prosecutor involved um, 
um, you know, several expert witnesses of, of different disciplines, not for the most part, not psychiatric witnesses. Um, but, but I was, I, in reflection after I tried that case, I was reflecting back, I am, I am using things that I learned 35, 40 years ago in the Chase case. I'm, I'm using those things now today still in a, in a case that I was trying in, you know, in the, in the 2000s. Let me ask Carol this. Um, you know, I can't imagine you've seen anything worse. I mean, we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot of murders. We saw the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. This is just a different level of gravity, right? Yes. So what would you say? I mean, just kind of looking back on it, you know, I always talk about the human toll of crime. I mean, how do you look at this yourself, both as a, you know, just a person and as a detective? Well, I think the most difficult part of any investigative case is um, centering on the victim, the victim's family, what they're going through, um, doing everything that you can to help them through the process. This, uh, these crimes were incomprehensible as to what he had done. How do you console a family? Um, what do you say to them? You're at such a loss. So the human element of it is the devastation for the families um, what was going on in the community. Um, but you also look at, uh, in this particular case, the mental health issues that Richard Chase had. And I look at his family uh, and uh, everything that they were doing, they had putting up in an apartment, they were paying his rent, paying his bills, bringing food to him. Uh, they were taking him uh, on excursions. Uh, they were taking him out to buy a Christmas present, the jacket that he was wearing. Um, when you look at the human element, I think that is the most difficult. Yes, the crime scene, all of the things that you see, um, you process those. But to me, the most difficult thing is trying to ease victims through the process. And I, I used to think, gosh, we made an arrest, we brought closure. And you know, Emery and Al, there's never closure for people that have gone through the horrific crimes like we have seen in this community. Um, you deal with it, but it, the memory is always there. How do you erase a, a parent's memory of a child who was kidnapped and all of the horrific things that happened to that child? Um, all you can do is uh, be present and uh, try to uh, console or do whatever you can, get them the help uh, that they need through all of the channels that we have available in the community, and you do everything you can. So to me, uh, investigations, uh, no matter how horrific they were, always centered on the victims, the families, and what we could do to help them. And uh, I think that's the only way I was ever able to um, cope with all of the things that I saw and all of the things that I was involved in, in all the years I worked homicide and sexual assaults uh, is what can we do for the people who are here now to help them through this and be a part of uh, their moving forward. And I, I know that you feel very strongly about that too. I do, I do. You know, when I first read Albert's summary and, and you know, I grew up in Sacramento, you all know that. I lived down the street from this apartment complex where Chase lived is still there. It's right across from a, a golf course. It's about a mile from where I grew up. And I, I can't drive by that apartment complex without thinking about Richard Chase. And, and I didn't know all the details until I read the summary, but I think about David Wallen finding his pregnant wife deceased in 
mutilated in her apartment. And I can only imagine, I think about the brother of um, the baby, uh, who's going to be our next guest, Kevin Ferreira, about what it was like for him. That baby was missing for how long? Two or three months before they found the body. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Albert, what about you? I mean, you think, I mean, what do you think about, you know, from your own personal perspective? You know, obviously this case still sits with you. It's been 40 something years. Um, it, it, it is one of those things where, like, like you say, um, I, I don't live in that part of, the, of, of town. Um, right. But when, whenever I am in that part of town, you know, if I drive by that apartment complex or if I drive by um, the, the shopping um, center, which which um, at, at that time had the, the pantry market, which backed up to the wall in place and the pantry market um, played a part in the in investigation. Um, you know, um, if, if I if ever buy um, the, the shopping center that was adjacent to the Maroth house. You know, I mean, it, right. the, those those things just just always come back to you, um, and it, I mean, it's it's hard not to not to have those. I mean, I I can't go by those places without having those things um, come to mind, and then you start thinking not only about well, it looks different now, um, which some of these places do. It looks different now than it than it looked in in 1977, 1978. Um, but you, you reach that by your mind going back through the catalog uh, of all the things that you saw in those times and, and, and all those photos and stuff like that. And it is something that, that just it stays with you. Well, no doubt about that. I mean, I, I'm probably just like the two of you. You drive around town and you're like, well, that's where that happened and that's where that happened and that's where this other terrible thing happened. You know, I think I want to try to end it by, by just coming back to what you both have kind of emphasized. And at the end of all of this, these, this crime, this crime spree, I don't think that the gravity has ever been seen. I mean, we've seen a lot of bad crimes, but the necrophilia, the cannibalism, all of those things um, are what makes it so horrific, but we can't ignore. And I'm always going to say this, the human toll of the consequences of these crimes, not just, I mean, what he did to these poor human beings, but to their families, to the community. And so I just want to say thank you to both of you, because that's always been your guiding light. Albert, you've been a model uh, prosecutor to me for many, many years. Carol, um, you're the best of the best in terms of investigation. So I just, any, any final thoughts? One thing that I would mention that, that perhaps the, the listeners might not know um, that, that we haven't mentioned here is you know Richard Chase was sentenced to death. He was um, um, on death row in, in San Quentin, um, but the appeal was never heard, and the case never went went much forward um, beyond the, the point of the verdicts having been rendered be, because he um, took an overdose of drugs um, while he was on death row, and 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 he died from that and. Um, I talked to one psych uh, psychiatrist who thought that it was clearly an intentional suicide. And I talked to another psychiatrist who thought, no, R Richard, Richard was trying to cure himself. He still believed he was sick and, and, and taking the meds on a regular basis, the, the way the doctors were having him wasn't curing him. And so he, he hoarded the drugs until he had one big dose to take because he thought that would cure him. 
Um, I don't try to go into the mind of Richard Chase to figure out which it was, um, but but Richard Chase, about two or three years after the verdict, um, died on death row in San Quentin, and so that's that's why we, we don't have any of those later proceedings um, to, right. to talk about because Richard Chase uh, was gone. Good to know. Well, thank you both very much. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to um, doing the next second part of this series. And that will be with Kevin Ferreira, who is the brother of the baby that was killed by Richard Chase. So thank you both very much. Um, For the listeners out there, um, I hope you keep listening to these podcasts. You can find us on InsideCrimeFiles.com and listen to more about the true consequences of crime and the innovation and inspiration that comes out of these cases. So I just thank you all. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. To listen to more episodes, visit InsideCrimeFiles.com. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.